Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Uh, well, when I got here, folks, this morning uh, to the short straw, James Thompson was hard at work already, yes. sitting there tapping something out for the Financial Review on the Fed mm. decision. Yes. So what did you write? Oh, I haven't, give us a, give I haven't us a, quite finished it yet, give us but a I'll give you the preview. preview. Come on. Um, I guess there's two. What what interests me is the investor reaction. So Wall Street rallied quite spectacularly, really. Um, the Nasdaq was up four percent, and S and P up two percent. Yeah, it was up pretty strongly yesterday yeah. as well. So, so that sort of interests me. Like, you know, rates up is would usually be bad, but I guess what it says is all this is priced in, and perhaps the Fed is has got the message across that we are serious about inflation now. Sure. And, and in fact, I think that there was a bit of a sense that there might have been a half percent. I mean, I don't think it was, um, you know, that was not baked yeah. in or anything. But um, uh, in fact, there was a dissenting. There was a dissenter. James yeah. Bullard uh, uh, wanted half a percent. So one one dissenter, but it wasn't a don't yeah. put up rates. It was a dissent to say. Go harder. Go harder. Yeah. Yeah instead of the quarter percent, which is what they did, quarter percent. So the US Fed funds rate has gone from zero to 0.25 to 0.25 to 0.5. Yes, yes. Uh, they have a range over there. We have a point, mm. whatever that means. I don't know whether <laughs> that makes a difference. And the other thing they have over there is a press conference. Yes, which is great. The chairman Jerome Powell does a press conference and it's good, you know. An hour of questions and, and some really probing questions, which he bats away many of them. And he was very keen to say, you know, we're committed, we're determined, we're acutely aware of inflation fighting. But it was um, it's a really fascinating window into their thinking, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. And, and I reckon why doesn't why doesn't Phil Lowe do it here? Don't know. Put him. Put it, it. It makes them the accountability it provides is great. Yeah, yeah. So yes, but uh, do you think um, the Fed is now is no longer behind the curve? Or I mean, already there's a few Larry Summers and Muhammad El Arain are already saying, well, you've done the easy part. You've you've you've, but you need to go a lot harder. What what do you do? You think they're still behind the curve? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I as as Jerome Powell said in the press conference, things are completely uncertain now with yeah. with uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Nobody's got any idea what's going to happen. Hmm. So um, I just uh, I think it's impossible to say whether they're behind or ahead of the curve. Yeah, you yeah. know, really. Well, yeah, I guess that uh, you know, had had Russia not gone into Ukraine, they might have looked bang on. But, but it's just so hard to. Oh, if had Russia not gone into Ukraine, it would have been half a, half a percent. Yes, that's true. That's, that's for true. sure. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and there we are. And the other thing that they, the other thing the Fed does that the Australian Reserve Bank does not do is provide their forecasts. Yes, all seventeen members of the FOMC give a little, give their forecast mm. for rates next year, the year after, the year after that, long term. It's great. Yeah. it's called the dot plot. If anyone's interested, they can go onto the Fed website, call up the dot plot, um, and there they are. Everyone's got a dot. Yes, uh, uh, for when where they think interest rates are going to be, and um, I think the median. I'm just uh, the median. The median dot plot, as they call it now, which is a sort of a, a mean of the 17, mm. uh, thinks that rates will be a full percentage point higher at the end of this year yep. than they are now. And I think peaking at about 2.8 percent, which yeah. is actually a little bit higher than the market. Had, yeah. I think the market sort of expectation was 2.25 in this cycle. So, 
So, yes, I think in Australia we could do with some dot plots. Yes, <laughs> and, and a press conference. Mind you, the, we don't have – like the, the FOMC 17 are all um, economists and experts, yeah. right? Our board, our, our RBA board are just ring-ins. Well, no, you know, yeah, they're, they're business people. I think you mean drawn from a diverse cross-section of the community. Exactly, <laughs> that's what I meant. Um, it, it's an interesting way of doing things. Um, you know, I think a bit of variety is good. I don't know, you know, they have this process where... That's what my mum said. Whenever she didn't like something, she said, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, I guess what I mean is you, you get this... This, this thing where 17 members of the FOMC can be out there speaking, not always at cross-purposes, but they can have slightly differing views, which makes, um, to, to quote your mum, it very interesting. Like You get this slight sense of the differences that people have around this stuff. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it is. The, but the, I'm just saying, you, you, mightn't, you mightn't put too much store into their forecast of interest rates. No, as, as, as someone pointed out this morning, there are... Uh, History of forecasting is a bit like the RBAs. It's not perfect. Um, no. Which is a nice way of saying it's not great. But um, uh, it, it gives the market something to shoot at. It, it, gives, it, gives an, it anchors the market's expectations, I think. You know, we're on the rate cycle, uh, hike, hiking cycle now, and, and you know, we, let's get on with it. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about Ukraine. What's the latest? The latest seems to be that... Um, uh, Putin had an absolutely mad rant on TV last night. Right. I didn't just, see that. It was just crazy. Right. Um, but anyway, putting that to one side, there seems to be talk of a um, possible compromise. Well, it seems to be going okay. I mean, the, the, it's very difficult to read the smoke signals, but the, I think the fact that the talks continue uh, is a pretty good sign. Like, that, you know, there's no no one's storming out of the joint um, and, and, you know, Putin rants aside, the, 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 the negotiations continue and that's got to be a good sign. Um, I mean, Joe Biden called uh, Putin a war criminal this morning, which I'm sure will, I don't know how that'll, whether that inflames things or uh, makes them harder, but yeah. I mean, it is interesting to kind of speculate in the, in the, in the context of, of Biden and everyone else calling Putin a war criminal, which mm. seems eminently justified yeah. epithet, it seems to me. Um, uh, if they do come to some sort of compromise and Ukraine says, we promise never to join NATO and we promise to be neutral, uh, Putin says, okay, we'll go then. Yep. Um, whether, uh, how long it will take for the world to forgive Putin yeah. for what's happened? Well, to, you know, to, yeah, exactly. To be more pragmatic, how long does it take for, the, for Russia's $800 billion of foreign reserves to be unfrozen? That's what I mean. Yeah. Exactly. Um, is it a, a year or? I mean, you'd want to see that. Can't the be straight away. Cannot, <laughs> no, but it can't be straight away though. I mean, they must suffer consequences. You would think. Agree. Yeah, yeah. So, even if we get a ceasefire or a peace deal, like the impacts of this, the sanctions will remain for a while. The yeah. foreign, it'll linger. And also, uh, a lot of the kind of self-imposed sanctions yes. by companies yep. for ESG purposes. Yes. Um, will probably go on. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're, I'm picking names at random, BP, PwC, um, Nike, Apple, are you reopening your Russian business? Are you re-establishing ties? Are, are you rushing back in there? I, I don't I don't think so. So, no. I mean, that said, Russia, <laughs> Europe will be very happy to keep taking Russia's gas and oil. 
I know, but, but, but they are going, I would have thought, and you know, just reading mm. stuff, they're clearly going to get themselves off it. I mean, they're going to, they're going to find alternatives. Yes. That, that, yeah. And so it'll take a while. Yep. But I think we can assume that uh, over time, Russia's oil and gas will be out of the market, probably. Yes. Europe is going to... Uh, look for alternatives. Yeah, oh, absolutely. They need. To, I mean, the, no matter what happens in Ukraine, the dependency at forty percent of you know Europe's I mean, gas coming crazy. from Russia was and crazy. They now, anyway. they now yeah. realise how crazy that was. Yeah, yeah. So, I think the other thing, just before we move on, Alan, worth mentioning. You know, we've had a pretty good twenty-four hours for markets. The, the Fed sort of bit of certainty there. The, the peace talks going nicely, and then we saw this extraordinary intervention in China where the government's basically not quite said we'll do whatever it takes to stabilise financial markets, but not far off it. Um, they're they're going to have financial market reforms, make it easier for companies to list overseas, calming down the property uh, sector fears that have been bubbling along for 12 months. So it's quite a bit... Uh, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised at this rally we're seeing uh, in the last few days. Mm. There's quite a bit of good news around. I, I do think that a lot of the rally has to do with China. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, they, they, they're they clearly... I mean, the the downturn a few days ago was also to do with China. Yes. yes. Because of the lockdowns. Yeah. Um, where they're going, still going with zero COVID. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, are the vaccine rates in China not good? Or, or? No, the, well, the vaccine's no good. Right. Z- Sinovac... I mean, and this is part of the problem is that they've been pushing out this propaganda about how fantastic Sinovac is, but clearly not. Yeah. And they've been refusing to accept the um, mRNA vaccines developed by Pfizer, Pfizer and Moderna. Right, right. So whereas the rest of the world's got all these fantastic new vaccines, yes. in China they haven't. So and they've all, really all they've got is this Sinovac, which and the uh, uh, effectiveness rate, uh, whatever it is, is I don't know quite what it is, but I know it's much lower than yeah, okay. than, than our vaccine. So that um, you know they they feel like they have to lock down, yeah. which is terrible. It's, it's a rock and a hard place there. Mm. Gosh, mm. you got a thing on this on our little rundown here saying tech smashing. So I'm wondering whether you mean <laughs> the tech is smashing or is tech being smashed? Well, I think um, t- I think I meant tech being smashed when at the time but it now seems to be surging back but i guess i'm just reflecting on some of these incredible moves you know the zooms and the pelotons like um and there's another company a u.s uh, sorry an asian uh logistics software logistics business called c some of these stocks are off 70 to 80 percent in the last sort of six months the, the, the move, the size of the moves are incredible in parts of the tech sector. You know, the big boats, the Apples and the Microsoft, they, they've held up all right. But some of the moves are incredible. And then you, you just wonder, I mean, I don't know, is it oversold or are these things coming back to a more realistic valuation? It's interesting, isn't it? Because no, nobody's calling it, a, a you know, another dot-com crash. No. no. I mean, everyone's kind of going along. No. It's not... Not that big of a deal. It, it, it's yeah, but the the size of the moves is just incredible. All so. the Australian BP, BNP, or the buy now pay later stocks are all down yeah, seventy or eighty percent as well. All been smashed too. But you're right. I mean, we're sort of. I think in any other market, perhaps where there's not a war and not a you know all this stuff going on, maybe we'd be paying more attention to this. But just quietly, this you know, seeing companies, big companies, lose four fifths of their market value, it's quite. Quite astounding. And maybe everyone just goes, "Oh well, it was all it was all rubbish to begin well, with." Anyway, and, and, and yeah, I mean, we all look back at November, October last year and think, 
what were people what what were the markets thinking? But you know, um, still, I think the size of those moves is quite uh, quite amazing. Mm, it is indeed. Um, uh, the only thing I think I wanted to talk about was uh, black tie. Now, I mean, <laughs> my heart sank when the financial review dinner invitation <laughs> arrived and it said black tie. You think, oh, Mine too. Honestly. <laughs> Um, but look, there was a very interesting piece in the Financial Review by uh, the Financial Review's fashion editor. Yes. Lawrence and who knew, that, who, who knew that the AFR had a fashion editor? I mean, <laughs> for a start. Yeah, well, it's an important part of our market. And anyway, uh, this person, I don't know, is it... Uh, Lauren Sams. Yep. Lauren Sams. Uh, Lauren Sams. Um, so she's written a piece giving us some guidance on what black tie means. Yes. Which I thought was worth... It's a great uh, article. And it's a great article. And, and, um, and uh, well, are we going to keep having black tie, really? I mean, I suppose that's... I'm a- not sure. I, I, I was like you when I got the invitations, like, oh, black tie, you have to take another suit. And, it, um, you know, and we've, I've probably got it easy. You just put on a suit and away you go. But Yeah, well, I, got a once- bla- I got a black suit, which I often wear, <laughs> so I just wore that. Yeah, well, fair enough. Once you got there, though, and everyone else was in black tie, you'd... The effect of it is, is uh, I think, quite, you know, impressive. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's almost like because it's not the usual thing, there's a bit of element of surprise that works. You, you, you don't like it, though? Oh. <laughs> anyway, so she says, does black tie literally mean black tie? Yes, she says. Is it a bow tie or a tie? Either, she says, but a bow tie is more fun. Is it really? Um... Is a knee-length dress okay? Sometimes. Yeah. So did you wear your knee-length dress? No, kidding. I did go with a bow tie, though. So did I. I wore a black bow tie. Yeah. And it's just um, sort of something different. You must wear a suit. Yep. It no longer needs to be a tuxedo, but it must be black. Um, yeah. What else? So, yeah. It is, it is a rarity, but I think... Once in a while, it is actually. It was actually quite cool. It was, look, it was a great event. Um, it was the, the Finn seventieth to mark the Finn seventieth birthday, the platinum anniversary. Um, I'm a, and the other, uh, look, I'm just reading this piece. It's clear <laughs> that the the, the the dress code for women at these things is much broader. Yeah, yeah. you know, the men men are got to wear black and white. That's it. Yeah. You know, I, would, bow tie. The women, I would say the women, it's more complex for the women, though. It's Black tie once meant floor-length gowns for women, but knee-length can be appropriate. It can also mean a jumpsuit mm. or a tuxedo for women with a bodysuit under it. Goodness me. Uh, and it's still hard to say no to sandals. Anyway. Well, look, it was a good night. Did, you, good did night. you enjoy the evening? I thought it was quite sort of exciting and... I did enjoy the evening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was great. Good fun. Um, yeah. Okay, questions. <laughs> you want me to start? Go on. Aaron, my question relates to dividend reinvestment plans. As someone who has only started investing a year ago, my holdings are still quite small. If the dividend paid is only 14 cents per share and I don't own enough shares for the total dividend to equal the price of one share, what happens to the money? Do I get part of the share or does it sit in abeyance somewhere until the total accrues over several dividend cycles to then earn me a share? Uh, Aaron, it sits in abeyance. And the same goes if if there's an odd number because what happens, you know, all the time, even if you've got enough shares, uh, it won't actually exactly equal 
yes. the, the right number of shares. So the amount left over, um, whether it's because you haven't got enough for one share or because there's, there's, it's not quite the right amount for exact number of shares, which it never is, it sits in abeyance yeah. until... Uh, you get there next next year or the year after that. Yeah, the, most companies have an account, and you yeah. will have your own personal account, and then uh, that account will go up, and the balance of the account will go up and down depending on how long you stay in the dividend reinvestment plan. Yep. Adam says, "Hoping you are well. We are. Thank you, Adam. Uh, thanks for the show. Recently, you touched upon the questionable formation information flow to the people of Russia regarding the invasion of Ukraine." As media personalities, big thinkers and residents of Victoria, <laughs> which all go together, of course. Anyway, um, I am interested in your takes on the quality of information available to the Victorian population during the prolonged COVID lockdowns. Did reliable information flow naturally to all residents or did you have to actively seek it out? Perhaps a measure of how confident we may feel as Australians regarding the quality of our own media at times of crises. Thanks for tackling this question. If you do, well, of course, we'll tackle it, Adam. Um... Good what? question. Yeah, go I, I think um, I think the quality of media, media and information flow was very good during the pandemic. If you think about the federal budgets coming up, right? The the the, the there's a lot of information in the budget papers, but you have to seek that out. It's it's not really presented to you. But the amount of modelling and the level of debate over the modelling the daily press conferences, like we've really never seen in a real-time event dissected in that detail really for like two years. Mm. So I don't think you really had to seek the information out. Most of it was very well covered. Um, And and even, you know, we had inquiries, the modelling was released. I I think there was a, a lot of stuff to digest. Maybe even there was too much stuff in some ways. Well, I was going to say, thankfully, Dan Andrews is not uh, doing his daily press conferences anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were unbelievable. Like, he would sit there, he would stand there until until everyone was exhausted. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so there was enough information that whatever your views on COVID, you could find the bit of the factoid that was going to support your side. So, yeah. But I think generally we've been well served during that period. Hamish says, on question, a question on SPPs, share purchase plans. I've noticed that often when an SPP is put out, the stock price almost always slumps below that, at least until the SPP is over. The current one from Zip is a perfect example. As of today, their share price is $1.77 and the SPP is $1.90. Why would anyone uh, buy through the SPP as opposed to through the market? I presume for institutional investors, it's about brokerage fees, but for retail investors especially, what's the benefit of purchasing it through SPP in this case? Or do SPPs go down to the, go down to the market price when they complete? Um, well, you're being diluted. So, the, so there, there's a dilution. The SPP only exists when you raise capital and increase the share count. So naturally, your, your little slice of the action is going to be worth less than it was. So that's why you see these the SPP set and then the stock price fall. Now, typically, the SPP is set is at a discount to the previous, where, where the stock's been previously trading. So even if you're in on they the They call SPP, it a volume-weighted average price, VWAP. Yeah. So you, you should, you, you, participating in the SPP, you're getting a discount to where the shares were. Yes, often the, the, the shares will trade lower, but you, you're buying in based on what you think is going to happen to the company in the future. 
Yeah, but it's fair to say, isn't it, that if the SPP price is higher than the market price, yes. you might as well buy on market. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's no point, but my, no point buying the SPP. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, and it, it, I think the institutions, yeah, it's partly about brokerage, but also partly about um, not wanting to move the market because quite often they buy in big amounts which tend to move the market, whereas if they're buying an SPP, they know what the price is. Yeah. And they can lock that in. So there's an element of that to the institutions. Yes. But, I mean, but SPPs are mostly retail anyway. They are. They're entirely retail. They're entirely retail. Institutional so it's not about the institutions. Yeah. yeah. They, come, they generally come after an institutional placement. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Hamish makes a good point. Uh, Julian, thanks for the great service, for the great content and service you guys provide. In a previous episode, Stephen raised the point that $28 billion of the $80 billion of JobKeeper payments was claimed by companies that did not meet the criteria for support. The coalition is spruiking their old chestnut that they're better financial managers than the opposition. Given these payments occurred on the coalition's watch, do you feel they are justified in making the claim of being good custodians of our economy? Um, uh, no, they're not justified. <laughs> That's easy. Um, it goes back a bit to um, the the stuff up that Whitlam made of things. And they really never got over it. I mean, the, the next Labor government after Whitlam was, was Hawke and Keating, who were fantastic managers of the economy, mm. let's face it. Mm. Um, set the set the Australian economy up for thirty years of growth, and you know the, the, their their efforts were fantastic. Yeah, um, it's also the case that, that it isn't true that the coalition taxes less than the Labor Party uh, in terms of percentage of GDP. Um, I've done the numbers. The coalition, the coalition's uh, uh, payments as a proportion of GDP, that is to say, the size of the government and. The coalition's taxes as mm. a proportion of GDP are higher than the Labor Party's, even if you include the Whitlam government in yeah, that. Right. Yeah, okay. There you go. So uh, that's, uh, I don't know what to add to that. That's, that's very comprehensive. <laughs> okay, Hamish says, uh, is this another Hamish? Yeah. We're getting flooded with Hamishes. Anyway, first of all, when, when is James going to put pen to paper and co-host the show? It's about time, James. What I'm are you, here. What are you talking I'm about? Here. He's, he's, oh. Must be a different James. Must be. Maybe he's harking back to Kirby. Oh, I think he might be. Yeah. The long forgotten James. Yeah. Hamish, we had a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I've remarried. He's <laughs> found a new James. Sorry, Hamish. Uh, on your recent, on your ABC Finance report last week, you showed wages growth in the recent couple of years versus the average in the previous 10. In Australia, the UK and the US, we were going backwards while they were going forwards. Is this because their wages were particularly bad and ours were good, so their average wages are getting closer to ours? Uh, or are we now getting paid a lot less than the UK and the US? Where did the graph fit into the overall wages picture? Good question. Uh, <laughs> well, a wage is a wage, so there's no good or bad about it. I mean, the wages, the Australian wages... Uh, have been rising more slowly than the UK and the US mm. in the recent decade. Yep. And um, I think it's fair to say the reason, one of the reasons for that is that uh, there's been very little business investment in Australia. Productivity's been weak. Also, um, uh, there's been a lot of immigration in Australia, which have tended to flood the labour market. I think, I actually haven't seen figures that uh, compare Australian immigration as a proportion of population to the UK and the US. But I would say it's higher 
or has been higher before the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, immigration was doubled, basically, by John Howard in 2006. Uh, I have asserted, but it's never been proven, I've asserted many times that this was an industrial strategy designed to suppress wages. Okay. Designed to um, uh, help um, emasculate the unions. Well, it's been pretty successful if that's the case. It's been successful, exactly. Yeah. Um, So I think Powell said this morning that in some places, wages are running at the wage growth is running at six percent in some areas of the economy. I think we're still at two and a half to getting up towards three. Could we close that gap realistically? I think it's also fair to say that Australia um, more successfully emasculated unions than, or at least worker a bargaining power. Let's put it more broadly. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, than other countries, and I think that so. Uh, workers and there's been more casuals, more immigration, more temporary, more more international students, mm. and so I, you know, I think that this, uh, the Australian uh, conservatives have kind of successfully suppressed wages in Australia. Yeah, and uh, that's probably coming to an end. Um, maybe. Yeah, it's interesting. For, obviously, we had Lowe at the at our business summit last week, Phil Lowe, and. He was saying there are pockets where the wage growth is running much above 3%, but the general sense from their market intelligence and surveys is 2 to 3% is where it's what, what employers are expecting to pay. So it'd be interesting to see, does higher inflation feed into higher wages and you get that sort of wage price spiral? Some, some, of, the, some of the feedback is that a lot of employers are doing anything other than pay higher wages to yeah. keep people yeah. and to attract people. So they're doing all sorts of, you know, um, benefits, bonuses. Flexible working. Yep. Flexible working. They're kind of, so, so that expectation that businesses are reporting that we only, we only expect to pay 2 to 3% higher wages is an expectation mm. based on their own view that they'll be able to keep people and to hire people based on other things. So maybe maybe they're right. I, I yeah. Don't know. Well, we're getting to this moment with unemployment below 4%. Haven't seen that for a long time, so no yep. one's quite sure what's going to happen. No, indeed. Uh, your turn. Uh, Darek says, enjoying the show and never miss an episode. What I'm going to bring might be a bit controversial, but I just didn't like that Putin... I didn't. I just, but I just didn't like the Putin Xi Jinping friendship meeting at the Winter Olympics. I knew then that Putin was going to wait for his invasion until after the end of the competition. What if Xi is waiting for the completion of the Paralympics competition and invades Taiwan next week? What would be the effect on our market? Most likely catastrophic, I would say. But there would be some. But some would be less affected than others. What do you guys think? Yeah, well, it wouldn't be good. It would not be good. I mean, what, what else can you say? Well... I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. I, it, it's sort of... It, it's interesting to think about it, though. You know, it's been relatively easy for everyone to sanction Russia. It would be totally different with China. Well, particularly for Australia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know... Well, sorry, we're, we're not going to give you any more iron ore. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're gonna, who are you going to give it to then? Well, yeah. It would just be such a... Hints, you know, we'd be, we'd be between, really between a rock and a hard place. It's just a, fascinating to think how it would play out. I, I do think this is why, you know, the role of China is really the pivotal thing yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, what does China do? Because they've allied themselves to Russia with yep. no limits. Yeah. 
So what, uh, I think the question is, what's that going to mean in future? Leaving yeah. aside whether they invade Taiwan, and obviously that's not something they have been intending to do or they, they think they'll do, but it's a long-term thing maybe. Um, so I don't think it's going to happen overnight. But what, what is going to happen is kind of a question that China has to answer. What are you going to do about Russia now? Mm. Um, because they are toxic. Russia is, yes. is toxic in a way that you know, no country has been since Nazi Germany, really. Yeah. And perhaps we take a line through this this statement they've made about financial markets, you know, this sort of whatever-it-takes type statement. That Perhaps that suggests that China wants to be pragmatic, yeah. value stability. And if they do that, that, you know, they just can't side with Russia. They can't even be seen to side with Russia. Surely. Uh, there's another question from Darek about the nickel market. Um... Oh, but also Nickel Mines. Mm. Nickel Mines, profitable company in mining. Um, uh, producing nickel metal was over $1.50 on Monday. On Tuesday, it dropped 6%. Today, it went down $1.14, stopped trading. The note on the news was that the trading halt was to do with suspending nickel trade in London on, until Friday, but that doesn't mean this metal will get much cheaper on Friday. So what's going on? Well, uh, the, the, the Nickel Mines stock is back on, and it's gone up a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's fine. I mean, it's look, it's got... I don't know, it's got uh, four or five mines. I mean, it's it's a pretty good business. Yeah. I think there was an initial reaction because nobody was quite sure who was exposed to what trades in this in the, as the, when the nickel market sort of blew up. And so we did have an experience where some miners, you know, because they've sought hedging or something like that, were, were caught out by these sudden sharp movements. So I think that was the fear. But, yeah, as you say, they've recovered and, and, you know, it looks pretty positive for the nickel price because a fair bit of nickel comes out of Russia and no one wants to touch that stuff anymore. Yeah, that's right. And demand for nickel, you know, electric cars, really everything to do with electrification, demand for nickel is just going to keep rising. Yeah, that's right. I mean, nickel looks like a a good bet right now. Yeah, yeah. It does. Well, I mean, you know, no one's betting bigger on it or trying to bet bigger on it than BHP, so... You know, they're not known for making, <laughs> jumping into speculative minerals. Maybe they'll sure. make a big offer for nickel mines. Maybe. <laughs> Derek, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to give the sign off? Sure. Just sure. on the front. Oh, on the front. Sorry. Uh, thanks for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. Stephen Main will be joining Alan next week. So send in any questions and they'll do their best to answer them. Uh, you can email themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm James Thompson, the Chanticleer columnist at the Financial Review. And I'm Alan Kohler, editor-in-chief of Eureka Report. See you soon. Thanks. Thanks.